You have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lethub.com. Paul Holden Graber's conversation with Ursula K. Lake Wynn. Hello, is this Ursula Le Guin? Yes. Hello, it's such a pleasure to hear your voice. Well, I'm very sorry. I should, I should, I should always say that this is Pacific time. Oh, it really, really doesn't matter. As I told you, Nimble is my middle name. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm delighted that we're having this phone conversation, and I'm, I'm, I'm really glad to to reach you. What am I interrupting at this moment? It, it, it makes you laugh, <laughs> which I think is wonderful. Tell me why. Oh well, I, I feel rather guilty about this prose because it's it's uh, it's a story. It's it's uh, uh, it is a sort of continuation of uh, my last three fantasies: the gifts, voices, and powers. Uh, I always wanted to uh, get into the background of of that that place, <laughs> the Western Shore. Yes, and uh, so that's, that's sort of what I'm doing. But but I'm 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 curious about why why you use that word. I feel I feel rather guilty. That's such an interesting way of of thinking about what one is writing and why one would feel that. I feel it because I think I'm writing it purely for my own entertainment and pleasure. Is, is that is that not something that that often happens to you that you you are writing for the pleasure of it? I always write for the pleasure. So so are you always feeling guilty? No 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 because along with the, the pleasure of it, there there is a sense of I hope this will be published. I hope this will be read. Uh, I hope it will be readable, you know. And and, and my my guilt is that uh, at this point, for the first time, I'm really not caring about whether anybody else wants to read it or not. So Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense, and it 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 sort of makes me think that there's a kind of of true freedom that comes from that. Yes, there is. Uh, Sort of like writing a song, or or, or the uh, the things you make up, the stories you make up for yourself as a child. It's just uh, it's just it's something you just love to do. You know, um, in in some in some interview I read uh, with you uh, recently, you you mentioned something that brought to mind. Uh, a line I'd like to read to you. You you spoke about your um, your. I don't know that you said it was your love, but how truly deeply important you think facts are. You really think that facts are are tremendously important, and of course, in our day and age, um, the the word fact. Um, 
resonates perhaps stronger yes. uh, than than ever and i think we we know what we we're talking about and i will read something quite powerful to you that i find quite powerful and have you react to it and it's a it's um it's a short line by hannah arendt and it seems to me um it, it made me think very much of of what you said when you said that you really think that facts are are tremendously important, and that you like them, I think you said. Yes, yeah, it is. This is what Hannah Arendt says. The ideal subject of totalitarian rule is not the convinced Nazi or the dedicated communist, but people for whom the distinction between fact and fiction, true and false, no longer exists. Bravo. <laughs> Amazing, no? I can only say amen. <laughs> but this, this, I, I think she's touching upon something there that um, perhaps goes to, to the core of certain of your convictions. Yes, it, it is something... This distinction between fact and fiction, uh, it began to worry me, not politically as it does now, but just in, in what literature was doing. And it, it seemed to be that the factuality of what was called nonfiction was of less and less interest and importance. Um, and that, that fiction and fact were blurring together uh more more than they did uh for Herodotus right who i I think really tried to find out the facts he just he just wasn't able to uh, and he, and he filled in which we all do we always do but uh, still. but there, but there's a different way uh, uh, and intention of the ways in which we go about filling in I think that's what you're saying yes it is it is the intention that matters you what, what you try to do, what you hope to do, is uh, tell the truth. And if you call your material nonfiction, it means it's fact. Uh, and it doesn't mean you can push it around any more than a scientist can. Uh, you, you have to obey what it tells you, uh, to put it in sort of fun. Well, it, it seemed to me that also um, Hannah Arendt's point was so deeply taken because when she says that the distinction between fact and fiction, true and false, no longer exists, that predicament... Um, well, now, okay, I, I would, personally, I would rephrase that. Tell me, tell me. We we always need to rephrase the people we, we admire, and that certainly we need to have arguments with them. The distinction between fact and fiction is not always easy to make. Sure not. Make it truly, but it exists. That that is that it exists the way a red and blue exist, uh, and that what we have allowed ourselves to do is to uh, pretend that it doesn't exist and to mush the factual and the fictional all together. Uh, 
Um, and I, I, because I'm not a political person, really, I noticed it first in literature, and it worried me. And 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 how, uh, if you can expand a little bit about that, um, what is it that you learn? What what is it that you observed in literature that worried you? That people who called their work nonfiction, who did not call it fiction, were doing, were making making it up, inventing it, and that. They declared firmly that the the difference between fiction and nonfiction was unimportant or, as Arendt said, non-existent. And I just that that worries me. I mean, if you if you okay, literature is just a game and so on. But uh, well, it is yes, but but it's a serious game. Yeah, and if your scientists start thinking that way, then you immediately uh, get into denying climate change and that sort of thing. That sort of thing. We'll just, we'll, just, um, we'll just have the facts what we want them to be. And, <laughs> oh, that's very dangerous. Yes, or, or um, a, a different way of putting it, we have, we have the inconvenient truths. Yeah, we, but the truth is not always inconvenient. That's it's, right. <laughs> it's sort of built in resistance that the truth has to be ugly and unwanted and inconvenient. Uh, Well, this is why I'm glad I, uh, I, I was exposed to science enough to sort of understand that. that um, but you were you were not exposed to science, perhaps the reward, enough. The pleasure of knowing the truth. Yeah, but you know, when I when I I mean, I know that people have spoken to you this uh, about this so much, but the 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 rich atmosphere in which you grew up was an atmosphere that uh, believed deeply both in debate and in facts and in in the truth. And your I I think both your father and your mother brought that about to you, to you at a very very early age. Yes, it it. it was literally the atmosphere that I, I breathed. Uh, so, and, and I'm grateful for it. I, I, uh, I could breathe deep. Oh, how, what a be beautiful thing to say. And you know, another way that you have of, of, of breathing deeply is, is to be so inspired by people like Lao Tzu. Um, And there's one line of Lao Tzu that has always been with me, Ursula, and I mean always, by that I mean to say for a few decades now. And um, I wonder if you know it. And it goes something like this. If you don't or if you never assume importance, you will never lose it. <laughs> I... Sounds very much like Lao Tzu. I, I couldn't say the, the translations vary so much. I know that's why I'm. I, I don't even remember who who the translator was. Oh, of course not. Nor, nor where it is in the in the little book. But yeah. uh, it it sounds quite. Uh, uh, it, it rings true for Lao Tzu. And and does it ring true for you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Lao Tzu generally does. In 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 what way this in particular? Because it seems to me that you've been getting a lot of awards. Um, you've been published in the in in a collection 
where only one other living writer is published. Uh, the Library of America now is is bringing out your work. Um, all of this is wonderful and must be celebrated. But I, I think in that regard, the line of Lao Tzu applies beautifully. If you never assume importance, you will never lose it. <laughs> it... Uh... Yeah, I don't know quite how to respond to this because of, well, perhaps it's because we keep confusing achievement with celebrity. That's right, that's right. Um, I'm very uncomfortable with celebrity. I, I really, I really hate it. What, why? Why? And then, and then, uh, because I'm such a quotomaniac, I, 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 you know, I, it's a disease from which I wish no cure. I will, I will mention to you this line. I mentioned it to you even before you respond. The very first line of, uh, Rainer Maria Rilke's essay, I think his second essay on, on Rodin, he says, but fame is but the collection of misunderstandings that gather around a new name. <laughs> isn't that great? Oh, Rilke is infallible, isn't he? I mean, he really is. And that, you know, there he was, uh, the apprentice, as it were, and the secretary, truly keeping the secrets of the great master of Rodin. And he was noticing a larger-than-life man, uh, namely Rodin, probably only equaled at that point by Victor Hugo, and thinking to himself, my, my goodness, what is this hugeness that we call fame? Yeah, yeah. And, and I guess the word fame um, has now been transformed into celebrity, and celebrity itself now, I think we are living through a time now where the most famous are really falling. I mean, you know, all kinds of people that were were extraordinarily uh, revered are, are for for various reasons, mainly actually because of misbehavior, are, oh. are, are less and less. We're less and less inclined to hold them in high regard. Yeah. Now that's this is. This is essentially political. Your, your, it's what, what you're thinking. I'm, I, I, I am in part, but I, you know, let, let's not even take the conversation quite there. I'm curious why, why, um, why, cele why celebrity is something that that really functions as an irritant for you. Because it is considered by so many people, they they have it completely confused with um, I don't know how to, I don't know how to put it. It's it, it's um, it's it's a mistake. Uh, celebrity is just sort of it can be created out of nothing. Uh, you can take a the Kardashian family, and every one of them is a celebrity, and not one of them has ever done anything famous for being famous. or interesting. Uh, but 
we have such a marvelous uh, celebrity-making machine going, and people people are drawn to to success of any kind. And this is just, to me, the, the most, the phoniest possible kind of success. Uh, you know, that accomplishes nothing, does nothing, does no good. Perhaps it does no particular evil, but, you know, what's the use of it? <laughs> but that's what we, and of course, politicians have always kind of sought and thrived on celebrity. Um, and so when they, when they, put a foot wrong uh, and fall uh, it's very visible yeah um, I was thinking of, of some of the, some of the people you you admire as writers and I was thinking particularly of uh, Virginia Woolf who you have mentioned a few times and um i think so right i mean it's an understate understatement of the century but there is there is um what i particularly like about the way in which you you speak about her is that yes influence perhaps but let's be careful not to not not to not to become the other person we admire and I was thinking of a of a line of, of Virginia Woolf that I've always loved also, where she says, no need to hurry, no need to sparkle, no need to be anyone but oneself. <laughs> That's lovely. That is. Uh, yes, because uh, really uh, what a great artist gives another artist is... is uh, is at most the wish to emulate to, to oh look look what someone can do i love that i can try to do that you know that that's what i said about uh, uh, the, the the last writer and the only writer of my generation really um um now i'm blocking his name jose the Portuguese. Uh, Saramago. Saramago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I think I, I, I read of your love of him. Yeah, and, and it, it was rather hard earned. I found him very difficult and rewarding at first, and frightening. Uh, <laughs> and then, then you know, uh, gradually, uh, I, I thought, oh, all right, this, this man is writing for me. Uh, what does, my what, time, mm-hmm. not my experience, but my age, and uh, I cannot imitate him. I wouldn't want to, but I can emulate him in a sense. I can, I can see what he does that's so good, and, and try to do something good in the same way. This, that sounds awfully uh, moralistic. No, no, no. I, I, I actually was going to ask you to to expand on it because i think the the um, these two words are so beautiful and if we can unpack them a little bit i think it would be helpful the 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 difference and tension between imitate and emulate and and what that word emulate might mean for for you in particular Ursula, as a writer yeah it, it means 
It's not a word that is used so often. Oh, I mean, we, 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 we use the word influence. Yes. And I remember when I, when I, when I spoke, boring. when I spoke once with, it is. I mean, it is, it is kind of boring, except if you think of it, um, in, in, in the tradition you know well of, of listening to the word and thinking of it as a river and thinking of it as water influence as something that is a, a current then it becomes yeah. then it becomes more interesting but if not it it sort of is it doesn't carry a lot of weight in some way it just does not seem to mean to me what it means to so many people particularly and, and this is a gender thing to some extent is mm. that uh, men, men seem to resist being influenced or fight it or, um, somehow have a more aggressive attitude towards being influenced. Uh, there's Harold Bloom's The Anxiety of Influence. That, that book came out and, of course, <laughs> it's a very interesting book, but it came out just at the time when I was the, the, the feminist movement was just beginning to show us that there were lots of women who could have influenced us who had not been allowed to because they were not reprinted. And it was, oh, I'm, you know, uh, there's, I don't have any anxiety about influence. I'm seeking it. Yeah, how that was my feeling mm. back in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, and it's, it's just kind of interesting that, so I have avoided the word influence pretty uh, carefully since, because it, it means so many, it means such different things to different people. And what's interesting in terms of, of Harold Bloom is that he actually included you in the canon. Yeah, I know. Which is, so there's, 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 um, I think there's an interesting twist there, but if we, if we pursue this for a moment, um, the the difference then between influence and emulate is that a, a gendered difference? No, I don't think I, so. I think perhaps uh, men are taught mm. that they should not be influenced by other men, and they should not that emulation is sort of an Im imitation. This is very recent. Uh, I mean. Yes, because I mean, classic literature, the the idea was you you tried very hard to emulate Virgil. Well, you plundered also. You plundered. You sure. play. You plundered. You that. plagiarized. You you took from uh, stealing was a, a form of flattery. I mean, the right kind of stealing. Um, you you took from and you 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 ate. Uh, uh, literature, you you ate it up. You you the tradition was there for you to to know it. And I think the, the, when learning by heart um, stopped being as important, uh, I think things changed greatly. You know and that I was thinking that this kind of sw swimming around in music and not being too careful about uh, about. Uh, swimming around in literature, not being too careful who wrote it or where you got it. This is what musicians have always done. They play each other's music, they make it their own, they play it their way. They 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 live in the, the medium of music. And we, since um, 
since we don't memorize them, maybe just since print, and since the absolute necessity for copyright, which, of course, is forced on us by capitalism, um, <laughs> it's not so easy for writers to do that, is it? They can't just swim around in, in each other's work. Let's say, yeah. let me say a little word for, for science fiction. Um, science fiction was a very small genre when I when I entered it, uh, and there is a certain degree of perfectly friendly feeling, but <laughs> borrowing within. We use each other's ideas, and you know, give them a riff on them, um, like like jazz musicians. Right, right, right. I, th I think that's the way it really ought to be. But as things are, it mostly can't be. And and, and people confuse it instantly with plagiarism, uh, either negatively or, or assuming that, oh, well, gee, I, if, you know, I can borrow that. Uh, uh, it has so much to do with, I mean, you were saying uh, capitalism. It has so much to do with... A, a certain notion of ownership. Th this is mine and not yours. This is a, um, a, a, this is private property. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like the, the, you know, the difference between the, uh, the white settlers, uh, how they looked at land and the, the way the uh, Native Americans looked at land, which was as a common property. Uh, And science fiction, since you were you were you were men mentioning um, men and women, science fiction was a. There, there were not many women science fiction writers. No, and if there were, they frequently disguised their name, you know, because the, uh, a lot of men are very prejudiced against reading anything by a woman. It it is still true, and it was comfortable. And um, knowing, it, it involves knowing who you are with a certain solid conviction that I'm a girl, I can read voice books, it's not going to turn me into a boy or anything but what I am. And I think the construction of maleness now is so, so difficult and fragile that a boy has to forever keep asserting that he's a boy and therefore keep away from girly things, you know? <laughs> This is how it seems to me from outside. I am not a boy. Never was. You know, I've, I've had such interesting conversations as of recently um, with Jan Morris, mm. um, who is someone I... I Very Oh, so interesting. Ursula, she is so fabulously interesting. And we spoke with, with her and also with Chris Abani, but with her we spoke um, about truly the importance of, of kindness 
she she actually talks about the religion of kindness and kindness is so often seen as a weak quality when in fact it's anything but that and i'm always so fascinated by the origin of the word which means to be of kin I, I think so. You know, don't don't worry. You can read a book that is not really about you and not written by the same sex as you, and it might it might um, both engross you and it might actually teach you something that you didn't quite know before. I'm interested in in uh, the this over the years I've been interested and I become more and more interested as I age too with the, the relationship between age and taste what we what we remain faithful to what we care to still love what follows us through through different periods of our life um, we, we start loving certain things and then 20 or 30 years later we we maybe don't quite know why why we did, or why we... <laughs> we, sort of, we we may know why, and we sort of uh, are slightly ashamed of it, but uh, nonetheless, it was, you have to, yes, the, the books that one loved, that one cringes at now. And I'm wondering if, if such... Needed them at the time. And I'm wondering if such experiences are, um, are very much part of, of what you think about these days. What what are those, you know, the relationship between growing older and loving certain things? Well, you know, I've had a curiously continuous existence for an American. Um, I, we, the family still owns the, the same house. The, the, farmhouse, the ranch house, that my father bought in 1930. Yeah. Uh, we, we, I can't get there anymore. I'm too bloody old. But, but you know, I've, I went, I've been there essentially every year of my life. Uh, and the, the family, the nephew that was born when I was 14 is now a man in his 70s, of course. But, you know, I see him there. This kind of continuity is so unusual in America. Uh, maybe getting unusual anywhere, certainly among people who are forced to emigrate. That's just a total, total break. Uh, I can't, I speak from a, a place that not many people are allowed to inhabit anymore. Right. I, 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 as it were, I hear you, uh, so that in, in I'm, I'm, curious in, in the way you describe this, that um, perhaps you're drawing a a relation between the continuity of place and the continuity of taste. Of taste. Of, of, what, of what you continue to love. And by that I actually mean, Ursula, also the, the very the very writers and the 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 books that that mean something to you now that meant to you something a long while ago well i may not be as faithful to the books but that that, that 
uh, I do. I think what I sort of confuse is is uh, the sense of place and the sense of who I am. Right. It's it's all connected to place. Uh, not not just one place, but uh, all of them are uh, essentially on the west coast. Uh, I'm. I, it's a funny thing for somebody who's known as a science fiction writer to say, but I think I'm an intensely regional writer. And I think one reason I've always had trouble with the East Coast literary establishment is that they don't really understand very much except the East Coast. And and believe that the East Coast is the center of it all. Yes. Well, of course, everybody believes that they're the center, don't they? But, but uh, yes, so it's... Uh, well, it's such a big country, I'm sure it's, it's, it's inevitably we're going to uh, to not understand each other from coast to coast, but it's too bad. There is this, this um, wonderful line, I, I find it wonderful, um, perhaps expressed in a two-gendered way so we can transform the words as I, as I read them out to you. Um, it's a line when I when I had a conversation with Paul Auster some years ago, I I repeated back to him because I knew that that poet mattered to him greatly, George Oppen, and George Oppen said to 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 Paul Auster, as my friend George Oppen once said to me about getting old, what a strange thing to happen to a little boy. <laughs> I, I love the fact, I mean, Ursula, I have to say, among the pleasures of speaking to you, um, uh, speaking with you, is the fact that um, what I what I quote to you or reactions you have are reactions of just great laughter. Well, you just, pleasure, yeah. yeah. Self-consciousness, of course, because uh, of what we're doing, but... Uh, but but the but the the George Oppen line is is so wonderful, and I'm wondering if if that experience of of um, of strangeness at what happens to oh, yes, and 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 how how it feels for you, because in a way it brings us back to the very beginning of this conversation of you wanting to revisit uh, parts of your work and and trying to 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 go back. That is going back in a writerly way, but you also look at yourself, and and I'm sure that that experience is a very interesting one. Yes, although I do not live in the past very much, uh, I, I, I seem to be have been born just looking ahead of myself, looking forward. I, you know, you asked me to pick a poem. Possibly I, to read. I did, I did, because it, I, 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 I think it's always wonderful. I, I, I love to hear a writer's voice uh, reading their own work. But the poem I picked is, is so apposite to what we've been talking about. Oh, please. Would this be a good time? Oh, this is the best time. It's the best time partly because it's now. <laughs> okay. Well, this is actually the most recent poem 
I've written. Uh, it's about a month old. It's called Looking Back. Mm. Remember me before I was a heap of salt. The laughing child who seldom did as she was told or came when she was called. The merry girl who became Lot's bride. The happy woman who loved her wicked city. Do not remember me with pity. I saw you plodding on ahead into the desert of your pitiless faith. Those springs are dry. That earth is dead. So I looked back, not forward, into death. Forgiving rains dissolve me, and I come still disobedient, still happy, home. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. You see, it, it sort of did fit. <laughs> oh, it fits beautifully. What we were saying, yeah. It fits beautifully. What, what, um, what a magnificent poem. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm still pleased with it. That, that doesn't always last, you know. You know, there's a there's a line by Madeleine Longler which I I I love about getting older, where she says that the great thing about getting older is that you don't lose all the other ages you've been. Uh, yes. Uh, so long as you keep your wits. Yeah. And you and you and your good humor. What one dreads more than anything else, I think, is just losing. Losing all continuity. Right. That's, that's, of course, that's that is a dreadful thing. Uh, oh, there's a, there's a great deal to be afraid of as you get old, isn't there? But uh, you just have to sort of go ahead and see what happens. And and um, I, I suspect also, as one grows older, one also begins to examine what one is hopeful about. Hmm. And I think it's... You know, this is a very difficult time to, to examine hopefulness. I know, but, but wouldn't you say that precisely for that reason we must somehow find some reasons, some anchors, some reasons to be grateful there's a there's a poem by Merwin called Thanks, where he thanks everything, even things that are terrible. Um, you know, and he too is very influenced by by Eastern religions. Mm -hmm. And I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm. I mean, we can talk about what, if you'd prefer, we can talk about what we dread. No. <laughs> I'm not no. actually I'm not very good at talking about either what I hope or what I dread. They are uh those are matters that force themselves upon me, particularly the dread, and uh I just try to keep flowing and not get frozen into any paralysis or any particular position. Uh, because, you know, the, the one thing 
we know about life is that it changes. Right, oh, right, and 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 in that way, Lao Tzu is very close in my in my mind to some of the pre-Socratic philosophers like Heraclitus. Mm-hmm. You know that ev- everything is in in motion, is flowing, and I love, I love the 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 piece you wrote on your on your blog, I believe, uh, about this whole notion of motion through water. Yes, that w- that was written, of course not long after the last election, and all my friends were in utter despair, and I was surrounded by gloom. Uh, We were sort of a wailing wall, you know, and uh, I thought, I, I can't live this way. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that seems to be the, the impetus for, for the peace. Um, the, the election Lao Tzu and a cup of water. I loved it. But of course, it's not just Lao Tzu. It is in deep in Chinese, ancient Chinese philosophy, the whole yin-yang thing. They are absolutely unstable. One of them is always becoming the other. Uh, and that's very, that is a very hard concept, apparently, for a lot of people to grasp. If, it, if it's good, it has to stay good. And if it's bad, it has to stay bad. And that's the order of the world, you know. But... <laughs> the Chinese philosophers says, well, no. In fact, if 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 it stays good, it, it necessarily it's going to go bad. You know, uh, there is there is no permanence in that sense. There is no sticking place. No, I I remember that. I just that... find this. I've always found this a, a most heartening. Uh, philosophy, much more than any philosophy of certainty and stasis. No, I I remember Lao Tzu saying something to the the effect that things flow quite naturally, um, so let them flow naturally forward in whatever way they they wish to. Yeah. uh, Back in the 60s, people used to say, don't push the river. Hmm. Which, there's a good deal of wisdom in that. Right. But also, of course, well, no. Ursula, um, in, in, in closing, I'm, I'm wondering if you, if you might tell me what, what you, what has caught your attention recently in the, in the world of books, in the world of literature. And and what, um, you know, maybe maybe one book that you're you to to speak about age and and taste. One book that you're perhaps rereading or uh, <laughs> that you that that's, you... that's easy. Uh, in fact, I can kill two birds with oh, okay. Do, stone. Do, okay. I uh, I read Louise Erdrich's The Roundhouse. Yes. Uh, having read La Rose and liked it very much, I went back one book and uh, read The Roundhouse, which I think is a splendid novel. Uh, a great deal of warmth and truth and honesty and, and uh, the most devastating ending, uh, which did catch me by surprise uh, as a... And, and then I look at it and, and, and like... Hamlet, it's inevitable. 
that, that it couldn't it couldn't be anything else. And it, that just knocked me to pieces. The book really uh, it gave me a very bad night after I read it, and it, and you know it haunts me. So I wasn't feeling terribly well, and I thought I I can't read another book like that. What shall I do? So I got Pride and Prejudice up from downstairs. Now, I've been uh, reading Pride and Prejudice, uh, which I first read when I was 13 or 14, I suppose. It's absolutely marvelous to realize that, of course, I know what's going to happen. I've read that book I don't know how many times. And yet I read it with a fascination. What? What? What's going to happen next? It's as if I'd never read it. That That is, uh, many people say that about Austen, and there is something about her her plotting or her tale-telling that is, uh, but it's true of all good books. Uh, one can reread them, I think. A book that you can't reread was good at the moment, but it's not durable. As you said, we 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 may have needed it, but that's that's that, there's a difference there. May, or the time it was written in may have needed it. You know, yeah. there are timely books that are genuinely very important when they come out, uh, but that don't wear very well over time. So, you know, well they're, they're filling different needs. What a pleasure it's been speaking with you. I really love this moment, and I'm I'm so grateful you took the the, the time. Well, it was a pleasure, Paul. And um, what? I send you my my very very warmest wishes. And I return them with thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye bye. Criminal Broads is a true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. And I'm the host, Tori Telfer. I'm a true crime writer who started Criminal Broads after realizing that I was uncovering far too many out-of-control and terrifying stories about criminal women to fit in a single book. So, if you like stories about female cult leaders, con women, women who undergo (laughs) seven sessions of plastic surgery to avoid arrest for 14 years and 11 months... Uh, women who hung out with Bonnie and Clyde, or serious speculation about the deranged theory that Jack the Ripper was actually a woman, I think you'll like this podcast. Look for Criminal Broads on your favorite podcast listening app, or follow along at Instagram.com slash Criminal Broads, where I post a lot of photos so you can look deep into the eyes of some of the murderesses we'll be talking about. See you there! (laughs) 